Welcome to the 314th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Kim Fortune, standing in for COVID Calls host Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a cultural anthropologist who studies disaster and environmental health vulnerability. I'm calling in from the Department of Anthropology, University of California, Irvine, on the native lands of the Tonga and Acumen. Today, we'll discuss the work of the social science disaster research community as COVID-19 has continued to unfold, highlighting work to build research data infrastructure, supporting disaster data preservation, curation, sharing, and reuse. A few reminders before we begin. You can watch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls podcasts from the full archive on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbeams. And you can follow COVID Calls on Twitter at US of Disaster or COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, July 27th, 2021, there are, according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, uh, 4,173,161 confirmed deaths globally from COVID-19, 611,171 confirmed deaths in the United States, and 6,924 in Colorado, home of our guest today, Dr. Lori Peake. These figures deserve sustained attention and call for transformative action. Lori Peake has, has played a leading role in both, helping conceptualize and lead COVID-19-focused research while also building capacity needed for the future to prevent as well as respond to complex disasters. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Kim. Dr. Lori Peake is a professor in the Department of Sociology and director of the National Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. She also directs the NSF-funded Converge facility which advances convergence research for the hazards and disaster field. Dr. Peake's own research focuses on vulnerable populations in disaster. She is the author of Behind the Backlash, Muslim Americans After 9-11, co-author of Children of Katrina, and the co-editor of Displaced Life in the Katrina Diaspora. We now return to my many questions from, to Lori. So to begin, can you just tell us where specifically you're calling in from and a bit about what the COVID-19 pandemic looks like there at this point? Yes. So thank you. And Kim, it is so good to see you. And thanks for um, hosting the show today and having me. Uh, I am calling in from Boulder, Colorado. And right now, um, Boulder has quite a high vaccination rate. And so over 70% of residents of Boulder proper and Boulder County are um, have at least one shot or fully vaccinated. And so something that's very interesting, my in-laws are from California and they were just back in Los Angeles. And my father-in-law got back yesterday and he said how jarring it was you know, to come off of traveling and to be in LA where they'd reinstated the mask mandate and then to get back here to Boulder. And he said, nobody's wearing masks here. And, um, and I said, right, but how long do you think that's going to last? And just today, 
uh, just hours ago, the CDC released guidance again that uh, even for vaccinated persons, they are recommending in many places that um, we wear masks again. And Boulder Public Health has been really progressive, really following the CDC guidance closely. So Kim, how it looks today, if I talk to you a couple of weeks or a month from now, um, it may look very different. But right now, life looks sort of normal here in Boulder, Colorado, normal, whatever that means, like pre-pandemic life. Um, and so, yeah, but but with everything that's unfolding right now and the newest recommendations, I think that change may be coming yet again and very soon here to Boulder. Well, it's certainly something we've both learned about through disaster research is there's never a, a clear endpoint and the way that disasters cascade into second and third and fourth disasters of different sorts that require different responses, I think we need to be ready for. And I think we'll get to that in your uh, in the discussion of the your sense of the need for the research capacity. We need to address these never ending kinds of um, phenomena. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little about um, where you're at um, as a researcher and what your responsibilities are. You're the director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. And can you just share with us the mission of the center, the work it's done over the years, and just briefly what the center, how it's been involved in COVID-19 response? Yes, absolutely. So the center, the Natural Hazard Center was actually founded here at the University of Colorado Boulder in 1976. And so it's one of the nation's oldest social science hazards and disaster research centers. And the Natural Hazard Center was actually founded to become the nation's information clearinghouse for the societal dimensions of hazards and disasters. And so the center was really fun, founded as a result of the first assessment of natural hazards in the United States, which was led by the eminent geographer Gilbert White. And one of the recommendations in that first assessment was that the nation needed some kind of information clearinghouse that could help bring together researchers and practitioners, policymakers and others who are concerned with reducing the harm and suffering caused by disasters. But we know that oftentimes those different parties don't always talk to each other. And so that was why the, the center was founded over four decades ago. And that is still really central to our mission. Uh, the center is still the nation's National Science Foundation designated information clearinghouse for the societal dimensions of disasters. And we have four main four main mission areas that we engage in. And so the first is uh, translating and sharing knowledge. So that's getting that research into action. Second is uh, facilitating connections between researchers, practitioners, and policymakers. Third is advancing new social science and interdisciplinary knowledge, which is the research leg of our mission. And then fourth is to train and mentor a diverse next generation of hazards researchers and practitioners. And so that's really, that is the heart of our mission at the center. And um, we engage in a lot of activities that bring that, those words to life in terms of we've hosted an annual natural hazards workshop for 46 years now, we just had one in July, and we do lots of other things like free online publications that are again about 
taking research from behind journal paywalls and trying to get it out into the world to make sure that the people, the practitioners and policymakers who may really need that research can use it. And so that's what we do. I, I was a graduate student at the Hazard Center, actually, and this is where I did my graduate studies. And then I returned here in 2017 as the director, and it's been the greatest uh, professional honor of my life to get to uh, lead the center. Well, you've done amazing work. Can you say how what counted as a hazard and disaster in the early days of the center and how that has shifted and morphed and somehow the pandemic became, you know, on your to-do list, you know, <laughs> within a very expanded sense of what a disaster and hazard is. So just tell us a little bit about how that, the focus has shifted as the center has developed. Oh, Kim, that is an amazing question. And to answer that, I am going to get really concrete with you. And so I just pulled off my shelf. For those who are watching the live stream, this is the first assessment of natural hazards, which was published in 1975 and was sponsored by the National Academies and the National Science Foundation. And again, is what led to the founding of the Natural Hazard Center. So in answer to your question about what counted as a natural hazard. In this first assessment, here are the hazards that were covered. Hurricane, flood, thunderstorm hazards, including lightning, tornado, and hail, windstorm, frost and freezing, urban snow, earthquake and tsunami, landslide, snow avalanche, coastal erosion, drought, and volcano. And so those 12 natural hazards were the hazards that were assessed in this first assessment of trying to understand everything from um, what was driving the losses from these hazards, what are the potential, what the language Gilbert used was human adjustments to the hazards, what we often call mitigation or adaptation today. And so those 12 natural hazards, a couple of things that I think are really relevant to this conversation. For the most part, they were treated as discrete hazards. So we might look at, I mean, earthquake and tsunami were lumped together, of course, but otherwise the, the hazards were mostly treated as discrete. You also note that they're technological hazards, terrorism, pandemic, not mentioned in, in that first assessment. Um, now, with all that said, and with complete respect, Gilbert was one of the not only one of the leading flood researchers in the entire world, water scarcity was actually one of his big concerns. And so this meant, isn't meant to overplay sort of at the founding of the center that it was very, very natural hazards. But over time, what certainly has happened with our center and with many other academic hazards and disaster research centers is over the years, as big events have happened, um, that have really shifted the landscape of hazards and disaster research and policy. You also saw the center change direction. So I was a grad student during 9-11. And during 9-11, um, when terrorism took center stage, the center funded a number of 9-11 focus grants, produced a book on 9-11. When um, Dennis Maletti became the director in the mid-90s, he had experience with um, nuclear evacuation mm -hmm. and behavior in response to tech hazards. So in the 90s and 2000s, we started to see 
the natural hazards focus was always there. But we started to see more tech hazards, more technological hazards. When Kathleen Tierney was the director in the the early 2000s, same, she was working on not only natural hazards, but terrorism. And then um, in this latest era, I mean, you really alluded to it, that not only has that sort of compilation of hazards have we continued to build on it, but now we've also started a number, we were able to pivot and use sort of the infrastructure that we had in place to both support the existing research community to do pandemic research, but also to support new researchers in the field through, for example, our longstanding quick response program that again, we funded over 300 quick response grants over the past 35 years. Most of them have focused on so-called natural hazards events, but then we did two major special calls on the pandemic and so forth. And so that's just, kind of giving you an idea of the number of different hazard phenomena that have been investigated over the years, again, not just by us, but by other disaster researchers. But I think that some of the infrastructure we have in place at the center has, again, really allowed us to um, pivot when something like this happens to make sure that the research community is supported in the ways that they need to be supported to look at these compound, Mm -hmm. complex, cascading and to use your language, slow disasters as well. Yeah. Tell us a little about the waves of rapid research funding that you gave for COVID. And just, I'm familiar with the incredible scope and diversity of the projects. What did you learn about both disaster and about what research capacity to address disaster risk looks like? Just you know, at this point, just from that array of projects? Uh, That is a great question. And to answer it, I will start by saying a little bit about the funding mechanism. And and there were really two. So I'll start with what we did through the Natural Hazard Center. And then I know we're going to talk about Converge and the COVID-19 working groups that we funded through Converge. And so, but I'll start with the Hazard Center. So through the Natural Hazard Center, through our clearinghouse grant, for about 35 years, we have had this quick response research program. And so um, in a given year, we have a, a pot of money where we are able, a pot of money from the National Science Foundation, where we are able to accept these uh, grant small small award proposals for between fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars that are really there to help researchers to go into the field and to collect perishable data, and so the center over the years again has has just really had the honor of getting to administer this program, and so when a researcher says something's happened, I'd like to go into the field and learn from it. With that kind of small amount, we're able to distribute those funds much more quickly and to support researchers to move into the field. And so that is the mechanism that, again, the center had used after 9-11, after Hurricane Katrina, and after just hundreds of other events to support researchers to go into the field and do this work. And so the quick response mechanism, we did a special call for pandemic-focused proposals in, in the spring of 2020, when really, when everything was still sort of shutting down and people were figuring out what was going on, we were able to very quickly do this special call. And then about a year later, 
we did a second major special call. And so that's kind of how we were able to do that quickly. And I applied for supplemental funding through the National Science Foundation to support that second special call for proposals because we went through that whole pot of money in that first special call because we just received dozens and dozens and dozens of extraordinary proposals more than we could fund. And so, and we also wanted to fund, um, not only did we wish we could have funded more as all people would say, but also we wanted to make sure and support projects over time that we're trying to build on the study. And so um, the initial study, so that was the mechanism. And then in, in terms of your question about what did we, what did we learn about disaster and what did we learn about just the research capacity of the community? I think I'll start with that latter question I mean, one of the most extraordinary things, Kim, was just seeing how ready this community, even though it was, um, I mean, a pandemic is something that many, many people in our community have been saying is one of the worst case scenarios, and they've been thinking about it and trying to provoke preparedness for it. But this is on a scale, obviously, none of us have seen in our lifetime, but this community pivoted um, both new members came in who maybe had no experience studying disaster, as well as long-standing disaster researchers who said, I'm going to take my knowledge and skills and capabilities from studying hurricanes and floods and fires, and I'm going to turn to the pandemic. And so it was really um, inspiring to see that sort of pivot and also the, the new movement into the field I will say, I mean, some of the biggest challenges were really methodological of, of members of this community trying to work through how are we actually going to do this work at a distance. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, I think a lot of the lessons that we've learned from this are we really do need to be taking stock of research capacity, of methodological innovation, of what are the lessons that are common across disaster type, but also what is distinct and different about this pandemic that might stretch our theory um, beyond where it is right now. So that's where I think we're at right now. But it's just a thank you for the question. It's really important to reflect on it because sometimes I think something like this happens and we act, but we also really need to learn from the process and um, as, as well as obviously from all of the ample findings that are coming out of these studies. Yeah, well, I'll ask more about that when we um, discuss the research data infrastructure because the question of how do we uh, build on and leverage over time research done, especially research pulled together quickly, is especially challenging. So I'll ask about that in just a minute. But let me let me zoom out a little different way and and ask you to think as a disaster sociologist and. Share with us what you think we get by bringing the insights from disaster research to studies of pandemic, to a pandemic, and particularly the COVID-19 pandemic, which early on was seen to synergize with other kind of stressors on communities. But you know, not everyone uses a disaster frame. And so what, it, what have you seen that kind of you and your community can offer to pandemic um, characterization, recovery efforts, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. And and I think I always think of it, Kim, like it's it's a lens, right? That mm -hmm. every every disaster that we we study, we hope 
that what that does is the, the inevitable, the next time when a disaster unfolds, that that lens that was sharpened and honed and refined in the prior event, that allows us to see something more clearly in the next event. And so I, I have to say, I think as somebody who spent so much of my uh, emerging adult life studying Katrina, for example, that all of the lessons of Katrina, let's think about how many of the, that lens that was sharpened in Katrina, how I think it helped us to interrogate and to see things more quickly in this pandemic. And so to give a, a concrete example of that. How many times have all of us pushed back against the, you know, disasters are acts of God, disasters are equal opportunity mm -hmm. events that everybody's affected equally. And so when people at the outset of the pandemic said, oh, this is we're all in this together, we're all in the same, but everybody's being, you know, this is the first ever global disaster that we're all being affected the same I think that was a lens that disaster researchers, just like health equity researchers and others, they immediately said, no, 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 no. Disasters may bring out the best in us in, in certain ways, especially during the response. But disasters also deepen the already existing fractures in our society. They deepen the inequalities and the injustices. And so, you know, from the start, that sort of narrative frame about where everybody's going to be affected the same by the pandemic, I think that was one obvious mm -hmm. thing that the disaster research community brought was that question about who who is the most likely or the least likely to be able to prepare for, respond to, and recover from this where are we going to see the unequal impacts, the protracted recovery, all of the things that we see in other sorts of events? So I think that's that's one obvious lens that the disaster research community brought. The disaster research community also for over 70 years has been talking about how disasters bring about collective solidarity and altruism. And so I think that was another place where disaster researchers were quick to look for where where are those um, moments of mutual help and mutual aid, where are those emerging, even in this time when we're being told to stay apart and to distance, and but still how are we coming together in creative and incredible ways? And so I just, I could go on forever <laughs> about this, about where I think um, the lens, again, that has been sharpened in the many, many disasters that have preceded this have helped. This communication is just enormous. And all of the lessons we've learned about effective risk communication and when risk communication falls apart, I think that's been both the, the hope and the heartbreak of the, the pandemic for risk communication researchers. And so, again, it's sort of like Pick your topic in disaster research and then see, you know, how closely does it does it apply in in the pandemic? Um, but I think there are lots and lots of examples like that we can draw on. Yeah, those are great examples. Do you one of the things that concerns me as a disaster researcher is what I think of as coordination capacity, the capacity to work between health and environment agencies, education. You know, in this case, the the first responders, you know, National Guard, fire personnel. And did you see, and all, all disasters challenge our coordination capacity, but were there new players in the disaster response mix in the pandemic that um, 
you took note of because they were kind of um, new people at the table, so to speak? Oh, so that is a really, that is a great question. I think one thing that immediately came to mind was also just the responsibility question, right? That when we look back and think about, it's not even just coordination capacity, but who was in charge? Mm -hmm. So was it health and human services? When in, in, a, in a, a disaster of this magnitude, a catastrophe of this magnitude that obviously requires a, a federal level response. But at the beginning, like not even having that coordination conversation until we know who is in charge. Again, is it the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention? Is it Health and Human Services? Is it the Federal Emergency Management Agency? And we saw that movement in that leadership, which I at the federal level, which I think really affected that coordination capacity to use your language. And so that was, that's not an answer per se to a great yeah. question. It's more just sort of a reflection of, 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 of the difficulty um, associated with this. So that's sort of one immediate thought. And then the other thought, I'm just going to switch lanes like this, but another thought that came into my mind as you were asking that, Kim, was related to the fact that um, natural hazards did not stand down during this pandemic. And so emergency responders all across this nation have been in a state of emergency, a literal state of emergency because of the pandemic. But during that, it's not like floods and fires and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes. It's not like any of the, those events stopped either. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of my observations around this coordination capacity has been um, not just about the new players on the scene. And so how are public health departments working with sort of traditional emergency management agencies and so forth, but also just the, the layering of the disasters on top of disasters and how that is also affecting coordination capacity yeah. and just the workforce in general. Um, what does it do to the, to an emergency response workforce who are trying to respond to multiple major crises simultaneously as they're also trying to coordinate with new agencies that they may not have been familiar with in the past? And so I'm I'm hoping <laughs> that our colleagues who really do this kind of uh, great policy and organizational work are really asking exactly that question because yeah. I think it's the right one to ask because we've got to learn from this because the future is here right now. There is no future where there's going to be sort of, oh, there's one disaster and we respond to that and we move on. We are in, we are, we are now, this is our new future. And how are organizations and institutions going to adapt to this um, climate? I, I think it's a really crucial one. Yeah. Now, one of the visions I have for research data infrastructure is having some kind of means of continually refresh collectively generated organizational profiles. So for example, if if all of a sudden you need to work with the CDC and you've never worked with it before, we have a way of providing each other briefs with, you know, really grounded experience so that people can go in more ready to work with different partners and mm -hmm. to imagine like, you know, it needs to be brief, but it also needs to be detailed and like what kind of characterization and knowledge sharing would actually leaven people's ability to all of a sudden be tasked with a new agency in a new region or um, so it's a challenge to think about 
I, Kim, I love that. And I was thinking again, as everything has sped up in our world, as we've talked about before, it's like, you don't even have time to complete the response phase from a disaster before you're getting pulled yeah. into another disaster. And so I love that idea because I'm thinking, you know, 30, 40 years ago, how, how did we do that? We did that through people sitting in a room together and coming to know each other and building relationships. And now things are happening at such a speed and the complexity of these crises. And this isn't to say that 30 years ago, things weren't complex, but right. just this moment we are living in right now, I, I really love what you're saying, because I think we have to think differently about how can we still build those relationships that are at the core of any successful response and in any, whether it's a research response or a, um, a, an emergency management response right. or a public health response, but we need we need exactly what you're saying, a different way to do it that maybe could accelerate that sort of connection weaving um, and, and ability to bring people together across those boundaries that, that literally can become deadly when things are evolving yeah. as fast as they are evolving right now in our world. Yeah, a, a statement that often haunts me is often, you know, new students of, of these issues, you know, they say that the government should do more, pass more policy. And I think one of the things social science brings to disaster research is to show how incredibly variegated the government is. It happens within specific agencies, within specific organizational cultures, and working with one, even one in one region is not the same as in another region. Um, and so the, um, you know, anticipating the kind of, um, researcher and disaster practitioner that we need out there in this kind of complex terrain. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think too, right, that that catch all the government. And I think even getting to people to think about what the difference between elected officials versus career public servants, uh, thinking about local versus state versus federal government and just yeah. recognizing that I sat on for um Six years I was on this uh, for the National Earthquake Hazard Reduction Program, or NEHRP. There is an, a, an oversight committee for this uh, law that has been in place for 40 years that actually mandates that four federal agencies, the National Science Foundation, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, um, the U.S. Geological Survey, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Mm -hmm. So that law mandates that those four agencies work together to help to mitigate earthquake risk for the nation, but also in the event of a major disaster that those four agencies really, when the big one hits, those are the four agencies at the tip of the spear. And I have to say, I learned a lot from sitting on that. And sometimes on the oversight committee, I would raise my hand and say, but there's gonna be a public health threat. You know, How are you going to work with the CDC? Because the CDC isn't, one of the four right. under that legislation. And so, you know, so again, I was learning a lot about what are the, the possibilities, but also the constraints when federal agencies are, you know, when there is a true congressional mandate for particular mm -hmm. agencies to work together on a particular hazard. And so that's right. I mean, Kim, it's 
it is an onion. <laughs> we can say it's easy for us as citizens to say, well, the government should do more. But when you start unpeeling that onion, it is exceptionally complicated. And I just, I have a great deal of respect for the, I, I'll say, I, I respect the problem. I don't want to admire the problem, but I do respect the problem yeah. of how difficult it can be to work across these boundaries, even though it's it's becoming ever more pressing that we figure out a new way to do it. Yeah. One of the strongest reasons I'm such an avid fan and follower of your work is throughout the time I've known you and re-articulated at the beginning of the pandemic, you had such a strong vision for the capacity we needed to build within and going forward. And I just want to read back to you in an early COVID calls with Scott Knowles, you described the COVID-19 pandemic as a, quote, all systems, all scales disaster that called for new modes of research, not just new, more research, uh, as well as uh, new research findings, new methods. You highlighted the need for new levels of coordination among researchers, enhanced data preservation and sharing, and ways of leveraging prior research results from the archive of the disaster sciences. And you emphasized the need to invest in next generation social science disaster researchers recognizing that the impacts of COVID-19 would be far ahead of us. And this was probably March or April last year. So early on, you recognized the extraordinary capacity building that was called for both immediately and over the long term. And I now just want you to kind of tell us the tale of some of the threads of that work. And maybe you can start with the Converge Center. And I know that it was started pre pandemic, I think in 19, 2018. Yeah. But it became, I certainly, it, it came to my attention as the pandemic was unfolded. So tell us what Converge is, what convergence research is in its practice, um, and then how it's become a kind of home of some of uh, your work over the last 18 months or two years. Yeah. And Kim, just thank you for um I'm just sitting here thinking what an honor it is to have anybody listen to what you say. And um, just thanks for that quote you read back. That was, I really means a lot to me. And I'm just thinking about how many times I've been on COVID calls now. I'm definitely one of your frequent flyers. And I, I just, I love listening to this and just thank you for, to you and Scott for being so thoughtful. And um, so to answer your question, and you were right that Converge was actually launched in 2018 as a result of a National Science Foundation grant that I wrote, and it was to establish this Converge facility. And so I don't want to lose any of the listeners because I'm getting ready to say a lot of words, but um, Converge is part of the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure for the Nation, or NERI, which NERI is this um, 12 uh, facility network that the National Science Foundation established. And the other facilities are all led by engineers. 
And so Converge is the first social science-led facility that's a part of this national network that is dedicated to mitigating natural hazards of losses. And so the other facilities in the network, they're like earthquake-shaped tables and wind facilities, and they're facilities that are really, uh, again, they're engineering facilities that are about trying to strengthen our built environment. And so I wrote a proposal um, that was about establishing this Converge facility that would, again, be social science-led and would be focused on advancing convergence research, research coordination, and research training for social science, engineering, and interdisciplinary communities. And so Converge was established in 2018. And all just my sentence I sometimes say is that the other NERI facilities are about the physical infrastructure and strengthening our physical infrastructure converges about building our social infrastructure for our research community. And it's about trying to promote convergence research, which convergence research for over 20 years, the National Science Foundation and the National Academies have really been trying to promote this specific form of research, which is interdisciplinary, or transdisciplinary in nature, because it, but it's also problem focused and solutions based. And so convergence research recognizes that many of the most vexing problems we are fo facing today, that they can't be solved by a single discipline in isolation. But convergence is, um, some people say, well, how is it different than in interdisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity? How it's different is that is necessary, but not sufficient. And so it's interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research, plus it has a problem focus and a solutions orientation. And one of the things that's interesting when you read the convergence literature is that the social sciences and humanities have largely been left out of this sort of so-called convergence revolution, that it's mostly been led by biomedical scientists, engineers, and others. And so I saw this as a real opportunity for social scientists and social scientists working in concert with engineers and in, in interdisciplinary teams in the hazards field to help advance this convergence revolution because we have been doing convergent-like research for a very long time. We may not have named it that, but I think by naming it and getting explicit about we are moving beyond problem characterization into we're not just going to characterize the problem, we're also going to work deeply with communities and organizations to try to figure out ethical and respectful and culturally meaningful solutions, which I realize can be a charged word to these problems we're facing. Mm -hmm. And so that's what Converge is about, trying to really bring that convergence framework to the hazards and disaster field. But it's also about capacitating current and future generations of researchers through offering training and other resources, because this does remain such an event-driven field that we yeah. really, if we're gonna advance, we need to have that shared baseline of knowledge. So training is really core to the mission of Converge as is research coordination. And so we do a lot of work in terms of bringing social scientists, engineers, natural scientists, and others together under this umbrella so that we can do this convergence research together. And, and is the, uh, the additive to the historic mission of the Hazard Center that you're more actively bringing in engineering into projects you design and 
And so doing more of the integration across disciplines, is that a, I mean, is there an, an important distinction between earlier work of the center and the convergence, or is it an updating of a historic mission? That is a good question. I think it's, it, it is obviously impossible for me to separate the two because mm-hmm. the theme of age and the hazard center. And so much of the hazard center, um, has informed my thinking about this convergence as sort of a, a, a related, but also something new and different. And so I will say, um, this made me feel very happy. Jolie Breeden, who is the editor at the Natural Hazard Center, has been there for well over a decade. She read the Converge grant proposal and she came in and she said, Lori, this is like if we were founding the Natural Hazard Center in 2018. <laughs> and so I think she saw it as, as a definitely a continuation of our legacy and much of what we've been doing, but then also is something trying to pivot in recognition of the complex challenges, 21st century challenges that we're facing. And that's where, Kim, you picked up on something really good, which is the Hazard Center over the years, I mean, from the first assessment, it involved engineers and economists and atmospheric scientists. But I think there is something much more explicitly interdisciplinary and even transdisciplinary mm-hmm. about the converged facility. Um, and so, yeah, so those are some of the iterations. And I think also just the, the again, the real focus on let's get explicit about mm-hmm. this kind of convergence framework and, and moving beyond the problem characterization, I think has been really important yeah. to its formation too. And, you know, I think it's part of the even broader question of how is qualitative knowledge a societal resource. Mm. Um, We archive it, we don't leverage it. It's rarely mentioned in political discussions or, you know, other than kind of varying high scale survey research. And so it's a question not only of doing the research, but of moving it into public spheres in different ways, which leads to your leadership and investment in research data infrastructure. Tell us the story of how you got involved in Design Safe and the the associated projects around it, why you came to see it important, as we've talked about previously. It's certainly not obvious to, to all of our colleagues that this is a high priority. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so and to answer that, too, I'm going to. I'm going to share one of the big initiatives that we did through Converge, which then connects to the Design Safe partnership related to the pandemic as well. So um, with Converge, one of the the big things that we did after the onset of the pandemic was I issued a call for COVID-19 working groups in April of 2020 and um, ended up funding 90 COVID-19 working groups that involved over 1,300 researchers from around the world who were involved in a range of groups on everything from vaccine hesitancy to Black Americans in the context of COVID to minority-owned businesses to economic recovery. And so these 90 groups covered a range of societal issues, cultural issues, and public health concerns. Um, And so we funded these COVID-19 working groups to converge. And just prior to the pandemic, so this is sort of a coming together of worlds. So I'm watching these 
COVID-19 working groups with a sense of awe and respect and as they're generating new data, new knowledge, going after additional grants, doing, doing extraordinary things and thinking about, look at what all these researchers are doing, not to speak of the thousands of others who weren't involved in our working mm-hmm. groups and thinking about how can that data be captured and be shared and so forth. And fortunately, prior to any of this happening with the pandemic, one of the um, partnerships that I had written into the Converge proposal was with this Design Safe cyber infrastructure. And so Design Safe is one of those NSF funded facilities in the NERI network. And Design Safe is tagged as the it's the cyber infrastructure for the natural hazards community. And so Design Safe, which is again at the University of Texas Austin, they are really there to help researchers on the back end to, to have a safe and secure place to manage their data, to store their data, to curate their data, and should researchers choose to do so to publish their data. When and Design Safe was established, I believe, in 2015. When I was writing the Converge Grant in 2018, one of the things that I recognized was that Design Safe really was by engineers and for engineers. Mm-hmm. It was led by these amazing engineers who I absolutely love. And almost all of the data publications that were on Design Safe were from engineers. And so then there was this big question about could we build a data model? that would allow social and behavioral scientists to publish their data, but also to publish their research instruments, their research Mm -hmm. protocols, because that's a big challenge in hazards and disaster research too, is Kim goes out and does focus groups. And I maybe or maybe don't know about it, but I sure can't access Kim's focus group guide. So I go write my own guide. Mm -hmm. And then the chance of us ever being able to compare our qualitative or our quantitative data is nil because we're all creating our own research mm-hmm. instruments unless we're getting, you know, sharing across networks, which we sometimes do or don't do. And so when I wrote that proposal, that was one of the partnerships uh, to have a sub-award with Design Safe. And so beginning in 2018 to 2019, our Converge team and a number of very generous social scientists worked with Design Safe to we we built this data model that allows social scientists to, um, in, in total partnership with Design Safe and Design Safe's leadership, with they're the ones who know how to build the data models and make it work. But we were the social scientists who said, this is how our research process works. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Design Safe released this data model in the spring summer of 2019, that for the first time ever, it it really is this robust data model that is meant specifically for the hazards and disaster research community. And it's robust enough that we could go in there as individual social scientists, but we could also go in there as parts of interdisciplinary teams and publish qualitative and quantitative data, engineering and anthropology data, and so forth. And so that was the that was the infrastructure that we were building together to get in place. And then I'll tell you this last piece and I'll stop, but I'm so excited about this. That So we we had this um, data model. They brought it to the, Design Safe brought it to the Natural Hazards Workshop in 20, 
19. And I sent an email out to participants and said, if you'd like to test this data model. So they actually tested it with almost 80 social and behavioral scientists, urban planners, engineers, to make sure the data model made sense. And then they came back from the hazards workshop and modified the, the data model um, based on all of this feedback that we got from the research community. So we really could feel like, okay, we're expanding this, so it's gonna work when it goes live. And so then the, the data model went live and we were actually scheduled, Kim, to have a an in-person, the first ever Converge Data Ambassadors workshop in Boulder in the spring of 2020, which of course that got canceled, <laughs> but it did. We did move it online in August of 2020. And so that was the first sort of chance we had to train social and behavioral scientists in how to use this data model. And so far we have 11 converged data ambassadors who actually have gone in and they've either published a research instrument a data set or a research protocol using this new data model from Design Safe. And so these are the seeds that are getting planted for a culture change in terms of how we can, again, on the back end, more securely curate our data, but also when we're ready to share it, we can have this platform that really is of our community and for our community um, to help advance data sharing, but also instrument sharing. That's that's very, very exciting. And so if a researcher now goes to data um, design safe, you I know you can search, for example, on COVID-19 in the social science stream. And so there are three types of things you can find the data itself. And for example, you could add a um, either an uh, could you add an audio file or a or just a transcript? Like what kinds of um, artifacts does the system handle? That is a great question, and it actually and there's there's sort of two layers to that. And so uh, the last research I did in person before the pandemic, our team from the Natural Hazard Center we did field research after the uh, Alaska earthquake. We were in. Early 2020, we were in Alaska, and then we were in Ridgecrest, California, doing school-based earthquake research. So we used DesignSafe to upload. While we were in the field, we, we set up a project, and every night we came back to the hotel after we'd been doing interviews all day, and we uploaded our raw audio files into our DesignSafe platform. So it's secure. Most secure, you know, totally secure, but behind a barrier. So you couldn't like log in and see right. our project. But if in the future, if we had IRB approval and everything was, uh, you know, we had approval to share this data, you can publish audio files, you can publish transcripts, you can publish um, survey instruments, focus group interview guides. I mean, really, there's a long array of different artifacts or re, uh, mm -hmm. research uh, various various aspects of our research process that you can put up there that you can store securely, but then eventually when you're ready to release it. So like I'm working on a project right now where we're not ready to publish the data because the data is quali qualitative, it's not de-identified, but we are going to publish our IRB protocol 
our focus group guide and our interview guide from that earthquake research mm -hmm. that I just mentioned. So we're going to publish all of that on Design Safe, so it will be publicly available. And each of those aspects of the project, that that aspect of the project for Anchorage as well as for Ridgecrest, we will get a permanent digital object identifier for uh, both of those sort of sub projects under the larger umbrella project. And so you, again, if, if five years from now, Kim says, I'm, I'm going to be doing earthquake research in Southern California, you could get on Design Safe and you could search for earthquake focused social science investigations and you would ostensibly, you would then find our interview guides and focus group guides and closed in questionnaires that closed ended questionnaires that we used in this research. So you could then look at it and say, do I want to replicate some or all of this in my own study? And that people have been calling for this for decades that we need fewer cross-sectional one-off sort of case studies that we need more replication across uh, disasters. And, and so this is again, I think a big step forward in terms of both sharing our instruments, but also opening up the possibility for sharing our data and, and people doing more analyses of data that's already been collected. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and under the opportunity to understand how characterizations and perceptions of hazards changes over time. Yes. What, what about the, going back to the beginning of our conversation, what is there, um, are there limits on what counts as disaster or hazards or does the system, is the system kind of tolerant of um, what a researcher would deem an appropriate um, contribution to the system? Yeah, so that is a great question. I have to say again, because when we started this project together, it's again, I, I love working with engineers because I learned so much about sort of their views of the world. And yeah. one of the big things that I learned from the outset was, you know, uh, you may be trained as an earthquake engineer or as a wind engineer, as a, a, a tsunami is your focus. And that that's like you're really focused on a hazard type as to where I would always say, you know, as social scientists, we're oftentimes hazard agnostic, <laughs> that we're more focusing on that, that it's less about the hazard and it's more about maybe the population group that we study or the so I, I might study children regardless of the, the hazard type, or you might want to be interested in organizational behavior regardless of the hazard type. So it's it's topic or population group is oftentimes policy, those sorts of things that might drive us as social scientists. So when I started um, working with DesignSafe in this partnership, they had this very clear that it's, you know, sort of this typology of hazards that was natural hazards. So again, it's the natural hazards engineering research infrastructure. And that was one of the first things I said. I said, but what about terrorism? What about technological disasters? What about environmental injustice? I don't know if I said pandemic at the time, but let me tell you now that's in there. And so what is great about, I, I can't sing the praises of Design Safe, that the team there enough. They have they always say, we love working with the social scientists because they're stretching our understanding mm -hmm. of what are the different research instruments or the different hazard types. And so we just had a um, a third design safe training session that we co-ran between Converge and Design Safe. And this one was focused on weather ready research. And several of the researchers there were heat 
researchers and they they raised their virtual hands and said, but heat isn't a hazard that's currently captured under DesignSafe and DesignSafe said we can add it in the drop down. And so they've been very flexible, very adaptable when there's something. So another thing that's happened, Kim, that I know you will appreciate is one of the projects I was working on, they, they actually had in there where it used to be required that you had to put in an event and you had to put in the latitude and longitude of where the event happened. Wow. And I said, but a lot of what social scientists are doing, we may not be studying a singular event that's concentrated in time and space. Um, and so then they remove that requirement. So latitude and longitude is still there because a lot of our work is place-based and mm -hmm. yeah. you know, event-based, but a lot of it's not. And so that's again been the beauty of this collaboration is I think it's exposed. Like where, where are our assumptions around sort of disaster as event or disaster is concentrated in time and space and and so forth. And how can we expand our infrastructure, in this case, our physical and, and our cyber infrastructure through enhancing our social infrastructure where we're connecting with one another and expanding how we're thinking about this hazard space. And so those are just some concrete examples of where Design Safe, that team there at Texas, they are just, they listen to what we say and when we're like that doesn't work for us because that's not that's not sort of our our worldview that we're coming into the study of disasters with and they and and I have to say I've been so impressed with how flexible and yeah. adaptable this infrastructure has been so it gives me a lot of hope um, that while obviously you have to have parameters for any kind of infrastructure, cyber yeah. infrastructure like that, that it has been adaptable enough that that um, it's been really promising and really fulfilling. That's that's really exciting. Is there is there a reason why it's at the University of Texas and you know among those and what what made them the go-to place for this? Yes, I think there were two big reasons. So I learned this afterwards that um, UT Austin is home to TAC, which is the Texas Advanced Computing Center. And I may get this wrong and I'm getting recorded, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I think that TAC is home to the nation's largest supercomputing infrastructure. And so part of Design Safe, you know, being located there and receiving this big NSF award that they received was that they're home to TAC and they have. Um, Maria Esteva is the amazing, she's like the data librarian who does all the data models. They have Tim Cockerell, who's this amazing computer engineer, who he wasn't necessarily a hazards researcher, but he had that expertise. But then the PI, the principal investigator, is Ellen Rathje. And so it was both about Texas's computing power, so to speak, but Ellen Rathje, who is the leader of Design Safe. She is a she is a geotechnical engineer, has decades of earthquake engineering and hazards research experience. And Ellen um, was also very involved in what we will call the, the precursor to Design Safe. So there actually was a cyber infrastructure before Design Safe that was really more specifically for the earthquake community. And so one of the requirements of this new award was that it be much more all hazard that it be shared use infrastructure mm -hmm. for the broader community. And so Ellen was just the right, you know, person for this and that um, she has that deep hazards expertise. And she also had that vision for 
it's earthquake plus. <laughs> and so initially it became earthquake plus wind plus tsunami. But now again, that hazards portfolio has continued to expand and there are the, the COVID-19 projects up there, which is just amazing to see. Yeah. That's, it's really, really exciting. Uh, let me ask about a different challenge that comes in, comes in from a different angle than expanding the list of hazards. You know, as you know, a lot of our research, including our own, we really have honed the capacity at problem characterization, not actually imagining alternative and just futures. And some of it, it tangles up between empirical and um, kind of predictive, you know, it, a lot of bind, you know, kind of assumptions that hold down the research in good ways get um, unsettled in that. But is there, and, if, and part of it is we, what kind of research do we need to, to give grounds to alternative um, kind of planning? Has the infrastructure figured out how to accommodate that? kind of the move beyond problem characterization? That That is a great question. And, and Kim, just recently on that question, one of the things that um, I was having a conversation with some other disaster researchers that one of the challenges, right, of the part of our job as researchers is to ask questions that we do not know the answers to. And mm -hmm. so sometimes those answers may or may not lend themselves to the sorts of solutions that, that, that may be sort of framing our worldview and so forth. And so it's just the question you're asking is a really complicated and a really fraught one. And I think one of the challenges of why convergence becomes so difficult when you're looking at really, really complex uh, problems. And so I just, I want to acknowledge that. And, but to design safe specifically, one of the things that we have talked about is that the possibility as there is more and more data that's up there that's shared from um, from different research disciplines and on different topics that one of the future possibilities is, is sort of an unimagined right now or, or a future uh, not yet seen but beginning to be imagined is that could somebody come in there and look at that data and see something new? I mean, that is the, right? Like that's yeah. the ultimate that somebody comes in there with a different mindset and says, right. this data was collected for one purpose, but I'm going to try to see, could this data be used for another purpose, hence to solve a problem rather than to characterize it and so forth. And so I think that's absolutely, you know, one of the, one of the hopes for design safe is not just that people are putting their data up there and getting a DOI and getting credit for it, 
but also that that data is really getting reused mm -hmm. and it's getting reused both to ask new questions, but also perhaps to create new interventions that do help us to envision a more just and sustainable world. And so, you know, that, but in order to do that, we got to have the data up there and we have to have people who understand how to use the data and want to use the data. And I think that's sort of another next generation thing that's coming out of this that I'm really excited through the Hazard Center we just had a call, um, another call. We've had a couple of calls to encourage people to publish their instruments and data. But the next thing I really want to do is do a special call where we actually fund people to um, reuse the data. And so people, you know, but we've got to have a store of data that's up there from the social sciences to do that first. And that's a challenge in and of itself for all of the reasons that we know that it's hard for social scientists to release confidential data um, and right. so forth. And so that's another, but that's a that's another vision is when we get that cache of data up there supporting social scientists to reuse that data and to interrogate with new questions because the engineers are, they're downloading and they're reusing the data that's used in the, that's yeah. generated from experimental facilities and so forth. But again, that's sort of the quantitative data that they're releasing after they do a big test and things and then other researchers come in and can use that and so i think it's a question of when in the social scientists are we going to have that that corpus of data and then how are we going to start asking new questions with it um can you we're out of time but can you just i want to ask a um, sobering part of the story and then a more hopeful one Give us an example of where you've seen pushback to data preservation and sharing in the social sciences. Where is it coming from? What does it look like uh, in real time? Yes, I, I mean, so one place that I, I have to admit that I felt myself is is not wanting to share data before I feel like it's that I've actually had a chance to analyze it and to do something with it and to you know, and again, oftentimes we may invest not just months, but years, maybe even decades of our life in collecting that data. And so one one place that's just obvious is people, um, social scientists saying, I'm not releasing that data until I've had a chance to make sense of it, mm -hmm. to publish it. But also, also real concerns about the ethics of this because the infrastructure has progressed at such a rate that I've run into this with researchers who initially had hoped to publish data up there and then they went back to their IRB and they maybe didn't have approval at the time of collection. The IRB said, no, you you cannot put that up there. So there are institutional barriers slash pushback. And then yeah. finally, there are just real ethical concerns about it. And, and, and while there is best practice guidance that's really emerging in terms of how we can best de-identify not just quantitative data, but also qualitative data, that people have real ethical concerns about when is it de-identified enough and, and, and is it ever de-identified enough and so forth. And so I think those are kind of the three main categories, I'll call them categories of concern that I respect and that I think we have to work through as a community and to figure out there's not gonna be a catch-all that everybody after six months has to publish their data. I hope those rules never come down from any of our funding agencies, our journals or elsewhere because there's just too much variability yeah. in what we do. But I do hope 
that as people learn more and more about these resources that are more that are available now, that we can also have the hard conversations to talk mm-hmm. about where are these concerns coming from and are are they surmountable in some kind of ethical, just way that we figure out together as a community? Um, or are there just going to be some insurmountable concerns that we need to accept and respect? Yeah. Can you, at the recent hazards workshop, I'd like to hear, you know, just I'm sure you kind of looked out over the hole in your uh, role as director. How do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has transformed the community? And particular, and in particular, is there a, a deeper or different sense of the need to coordinate and share data and build social infrastructure that scaffolds the kind of response that we needed to, you know, to mobilize very, very quickly mm. uh, in, in the pandemic? Well, I I love that question, Kim, and, and it so happened that this, well, this wasn't an accident. There was a reason this year's theme for the Hazards Workshop was the workforce. And so for the first time in 40 plus years, rather than we are a community that's always looking outwards at the policies, programs, people that we're assessing and evaluating and trying to help. And this year, we really turned that mirror inward on ourselves. And so your question is a a perfect one because the the question at the heart of the workshop this year was really, is our workforce, do we have the workforce that we need to to address these 21st century challenges that we are facing? We're 20 years into this uh, century and we've got 80 to go. Or do we really have the workforce that we need to make it through these Mm -hmm. next 80 and not just to survive, but to have a chance to thrive? in this, this rapidly changing and, and turbulent and unequal world that we are in. And so that was sort of the question at the heart. And to your question about what, what have I seen with the landscape? So uh, some things have definitely changed. So the last two years at the workshop, we've had many dedicated sessions that are focused specifically on COVID-19. And they both involve longstanding hazards researchers that have, again, pivoted to bring the COVID-19 lens in, but also new members of the community. So I think that's one big shift that we saw was just that there were new new people there, public health practitioners, medical doctors, folks like that, that, that weren't typically at the workshop. Um, and I think the other thing that has changed is just this recognition that even if your mission is earthquakes or wildfires, that just like I said earlier, that mother nature didn't stand down for the pandemic. The, the pandemic also, you know, that, that it makes people recognize that even if their mission is a specific natural hazard, that yeah. the pandemic is affecting everything. It's affecting our capacity, our ability to coordinate, our burnout in the workforce and so forth. And so I think there was a lot of that, again, the discussion, which I've always loved the workshop because I've always just found it so expansive I think the big takeaway was it's even more expansive now that our imaginations, both for the better and the worse, that it's what we thought was the worst case scenario has has expanded even further to recognize just sort of the challenges that have been introduced by this pandemic um, and and the needing to prepare not just for the big one, but what about if when the big one happens, the pandemic is at its height. And so I think it's just the imaginary of the hazards community 
Um, I think the pandemic has just forced us into this an even different realm. And I, I think that's a good thing because mm-hmm. I think this is our this is our grand challenge of the 21st century is understanding and responding to these and, and trying to figure out how do we adapt to these incredibly, incredibly complex challenges that are just being amplified by the economic inequality and social inequality and other tragedies that we're facing. And so how are we going to do this together as a community was was really um, the question we were trying to pursue at the workshop. Is there the Biden administration's commitment to infrastructure investment, to environmental justice across policies, very hard challenges and opportunities? Is there a sense that within the hazards community that they have something to say in the direction of those resources? Uh, um, right. That's always a hard one because it's do who whose voice gets heard. Is it the loudest voice, the biggest you know, number of voices coming together? Um, I definitely, I have been so proud of how um, the hazards community has stepped up in response to several of those executive orders because they do cross cut so much of what we do. So even the executive order on the essentially auditing mission aid of the federal agencies in terms of racial justice and equity, the hazards community sure does have a lot to contribute to that. Right. And it's been really heartening to see where those research and federal agency um, collaborations and conversations have come to Together around. So your research has revealed that there are racial inequities that are emerging in our policies and programs. What, what are we supposed to do about that? Because if it's not intentional, but if it's still occurring because of systemic injustice, what are we supposed to do? And so I, I think that's just one really, really important place that I've seen um, that, that I've seen those conversations unfolding. And so this year at the workshop, there was a lot of discussion around the racial justice, the um, executive orders around that, but also around um, the climate climate justice questions and what can the hazards community contribute in that space. And so I think, um, as always, we're hopeful that our voices are going to be heard, but our scholarship is going to be read and is going to be used and help to inform these audits that are currently happening as a result of those executive orders. Well, I'm very glad that you are in the leadership role that you're in because it uh, you just have such a really powerful vision for both the what the community has to offer from years and years of research, but also what it needs to become going forward. So thank you for your work. Um, you. And we will have you back on COVID calls and also in many other conversations. So many other questions have raised for me today that I want to follow up with you on, but thank you very much for now. Thank you, Kim. It has been an honor and a pleasure and thank you for doing this.